the Empire Podcast this week, we have a hat-trick of fantastic interviewees. Gareth Evans, director of The Raid, pops in to talk about VHS 2. Hayley Atwell discusses her new play, The Pride, and Agent Carter, and more. And wherefore art thou? Douglas Booth, while a new big screen Romeo is here as well. That's not all. We also cast our BD critical collective eye on the likes of The Fifth Estate, The Weeknd, and Machete Kills. Plus... All the usual movie news and nonsense on the only movie podcast that's re-watching Breaking Bad from the beginning. Well, probably not the only movie podcast that's doing that, but we highly recommend it. Hello, Paul. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast, which this week is brought to you by a brand new sponsor, Beyond Two Souls, the upcoming PlayStation 3 game from Quantic Dream, the guys who brought you the award-winning Heavy Rain back in 2010. And if you're looking for the movie connection, Beyond Two Souls stars Ellen Page and Willem Dafoe. So there you go. For more details on the game, keep your ears peeled for a very special message at the very end of the podcast. Right, time to introduce my three colleagues who've been desperately trying to look happy while I show my holiday snaps. Look, it's another dolphin. See that? A dolphin. No, I'm refusing to look. It's, it's good. It's a dolphin. Uh, they are, you just heard, Queen of the Geeks, Helen O'Hara, whose ideal holiday destination is the Winchester. Well, that doesn't sound right. And you're a teetotaler. Uh, oh, no, no, wait. It says here, two weeks in the Winchesters. Is that a country house in the Hamptons, Helen? No, no that's wrong that? as well. It's two weeks with a Winchester. With a Winchester? Mm. I don't understand what that means. Probably best. Okay. Uh, then we have Nick DeSemlian, whose ideal holiday destination is a small island near Costa Rica. Fun activities include kayaking, windsurfing, and looking for tiny cans of shaving foam. Hello, Nick. Hello. You should never... Have you not seen Jurassic Park 3? You should never do any kind of water sports near Isla Sauna or Isla Nubla. <laughs> You will be swooped upon by a pterodactyl. Thank you. I'll take that on board. Thank you very Next much. Next time I'm, I'm windsailing near that there fictional island. Last but not least is Ali Plum, whose ideal holiday destination is the Isle of Wight, apparently. Is that anything to do with the movie, pop culture, anything? No, it's a lovely place. Yeah? Uh, okay, on with the show and on with your questions, which you've lovingly sent in to us via Twitter and whatnot, but mainly Twitter this week. Uh, at Ian in Shanghai asks... Is anyone else fed up with so many post-credits coders now? It's almost obligatory. Well, what do we think? No, I'm fine with them. Yep, I'm good with them as well. Let's move on. (laughs) I think what we've got here is that he is maybe watching a lot of uh, superhero movies, which is understandable considering how many are coming out. And yeah, there is a certain amount of fatigue when it comes to... So I've watched the movie, I've enjoyed or not enjoyed the movie, but I feel obliged to stay even longer than I thought that I had to because I need to stay for the end of the credit sequence or the one before the mid-end of the credit sequence. So there is that, and I, I feel for him. But in terms of it being like, oh, I'm so fed up with it, this has been going on since forever, which makes no sense. But it, it's been going on for a long time. I mean, remember back to Airplane, even Airplane 2. Yeah. Comedies love this stuff. Ferris Bueller. Mm-hmm. Ferris Bueller, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we essentially says, go home. You're done now. Yeah. And weirdly, at the end of Get Into the Greek, they do the same thing, except it's 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 not as good. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and you know, you, you can have fun with the credits. It's not these coders. Yes, superhero coders. Yes. Am I going to miss out on something that may be important for the pub conversation later, or for the next film, or for the Avengers, or whatever? But you've also got the Holy Grail, where you know it turns into an Ingmar Bergman pastiche, and all the credit people who were designing the credits got fired uh, for being incompetent. So you know there are there is fun to be had with this kind of stinger stuff. Mm. I would say probably my favourite part of the Wolverine was uh, Patrick Stewart's wheelchair slaloming. Um, <laughs> that was amazing. Credits. I, I enjoyed that more than mm. more than the actual film. So mad wheelchair skills. Indeed, with a Z. Yeah. So that's what he's been doing when he's been dead for the last six years. Isn't there one for Conair? Is there one for Conair? There's kind of one for Conair at, at the very end. You see uh, Steve Buscemi uh, in a casino. Yeah, having fun. Uh, yeah, having fun because he got you know he got away. 
the Marietta Mangler. Uh, go but, serial killers. Go, yeah, yay. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that that character. He's a cuddly serial killer. He's <sighs> serial cuddler. He's a cuddly, yeah. creepy serial killer. Mm. He's he the most likable, creepy serial killer, I think, in movie history. I think we can probably agree on that. What's a great line about him? He once drove across three states wearing a, <laughs> a human head for a hat. <laughs> you see? It can, you can do it. You it's can like, do it. It's like people. Tortuga. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not fed up with them at all. I, I quite like the fact that we now have a new culture where people who would normally bolt at the first sign of uh, the end credits now stay through them until they're absolutely sure that there will be or won't be a post-credits coda. Mm. I think we talked in the podcast before about how Marvel have evolved this uh, to the point where if it's a a post-credits thing at the very end of the credits, it's just for fun. If it comes up mid-credits, then it's in some way feeds into the next film or the next phase of films or whatever. But I, I, I have a problem with it where it's a major plot development that's just bunged into the end of the film because they couldn't think of anywhere else to put it in the, in the actual movie and we've had this conversation about uh, the uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes we've had that conversation I disagree with the end of that movie I think that huge something huge happens at the end of that movie and it's kind of folded into the credits and Green Lantern of course where Sinestro turns all yellow and evil uh, it's just a throwaway thing at the end of the movie uh, I wonder what will happen. Maybe the sequel will tell us. <laughs> Maybe, Chris. <laughs> Maybe the sequel, yeah. yeah. Some, some of the sequel bait um, post-credit stings are a little bit naked. Um, and, yeah. and it's especially sad when they just don't work out. Um, you know, I think, to be perfectly honest, Green Lantern is one of those. Also, I'm still waiting. Well. <laughs> Bated breath. <laughs> oh, you and Diana Ross. Um, Do you think he could use his ring, which can make anything, to make a Green Lantern sequel? You would think that, wouldn't you? It's weird that he hasn't. But, you know, also something like uh, Flash Gordon, where you had the, the hand reaching and taking oh, yeah. Ming's ring um, and somehow that still hasn't uh, manifested itself either yeah. I, what I really miss is the bits you used to get in the hot shots and naked gun credits where they would literally <laughs> include brownie recipes <laughs> and things like that just to check you were paying attention I was listening to a commentary for uh, Top Secret because uh, I was writing that big feature in Top Secret a few months ago and uh, they were very uh, Sucker Abrams and Sucker were very very open on the commentary about uh, how Paramount executives just didn't get any of those jokes and were really dead against him being in the credits and wanted them to change some of the, the the gags, and it's just like guys, you just you're not getting it, and they they managed to get them through in the end. Um, I will say another quick thing about uh, post credits uh, codas is that they're also evolving slightly in terms of other movies. I mean, for example, Fast and Furious Six, which is so ADD that it doesn't even wait until the end of its credits to have its end credits coda. It just kind of goes directed by Justin Lin. Now here's a coda. Um, are you are you still here? Watch this. We should call out the ones which are just kind of flame bait. Stuff like Cloverfield, where it has that kind of mangled noise. And if you play it oh, backwards, yeah. it means you're a pillock and shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> and if you play it forwards, it means the same thing. I think Cloverfield's a different beast because we have this kind of conspiracy, hidden, hidden, super hidden, secret stuff. Mm. I get it, but I feel a little bit like it's unfair on the people who are really, really into this stuff. that They, they, they find this little secret gem and then it turns out to mean nothing. Yeah. Mean, it could mean help us, it could mean I'm alive, but really... It means nothing, so it's quite unfair. There's a unique tragedy to these huge films that were so confident that they were going to succeed that they have a bit at the end going, oh, wait for the next one, and it never happens. So Battleship, which ends oh. with uh, that bit in Scotland where they find a thing, and it's yeah. like, oh, wait for part two, and then it never comes. So it kind of ruins yeah. the film. Yeah. Chris is still waiting for that one as well. Oh, yeah, a Battleship 2 and Green Lantern 2, double bill. Max Payne That's doesn't have, night. like, a coda, but at the end, you hear in the background somebody go, he's still alive! <laughs> <laughs> and you go, nah, I think, I think he might be dead. Pr- uh, pretty sure he's dead, isn't he? Pretty dead? sure he's dead. Transformers has three, I think. Like, <laughs> three, just not, like, 
give me a sequel because that was going to happen but just like three stingers <sighs> <sighs> was that Scorpinox was he one of them yeah, yeah. oh that's uh, right there's one where um, is it uh Oh, Starscream flies into space, doesn't he? Yes, that's right. At the end of yeah, the first escapes into space. Yeah, and we can't talk about it because this is a spoiler. Uh, This I'm surprised we haven't hit it yet with spoilers. But the grey has a Mm. a Mm -hmm. a question mark coda, which I'm more on board with. Which is we're not giving you the answer. We're just giving you like two or three more frames of the scene you've just seen. Mm. But we're leaving it open to your interpretation, and that's what that film was kind of about. Uh, We've already discussed how the trailer slightly ruins it, Uh, but yeah, I'm okay with that one. One of my favourites uh, recently, I'm not sure we've we've discussed this in the podcast or not, uh, was on Marvel's Agent Carter, the uh, the one shot, uh, where there's a post credit sting in a short movie. Uh, when I asked Louis Desposito, the uh, the guy who directed it, the Marvel bigwig who directed it, and I said, "Was that deliberate? Are you now being self parodic?" And he went, "Yeah, that's kind of a little in joke." <laughs> yeah, so I quite like that. So check that short. Oh, out I would love a coda to have its own coda. Hmm. It's I'm only sure. a matter of time. Yeah. I think, yeah, every Samuel L. Jackson film should get from now on, whether it's Marvel or not, should have Nick Fury turning up at the end. <laughs> I think just I every film. Um, Full stop. I, I don't know if this is a spoiler for TV last week, but he actually turned up at the end of the second episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I didn't see that. I heard some people on Twitter saying it was a bit disappointing. It hasn't been universally embraced yet. I think it's got some teething problems, but... Um, but the coda, the coda itself. The coda, well, the coda was a bit silly, but quite fun. And then then to Sam Jackson then just tick one off his list of <laughs> contractual obligations <laughs> exactly. for it. Right, that's another one. Yes, he, he actually brought out that list during, <laughs> yeah, yeah. during the coda. Now I'm off the golf course. All right, so uh, thanks for that, Ian, in Shanghai. I wonder if he actually is in Shanghai. Hmm. Probably. Probably. Yeah. Uh, next one is from at Wayne underscore Jackson 20. I hope that's his real name. Uh, which film set have you have you visited and come away from knowing slash thinking the film would not be good? Now, obviously, we don't want to tell tales out of school. There must be one or two that we've been on in the past. Yeah, probably. There have been films I came away from thinking, well, you, you do get an impression. Like, for example, I was on set of 300 and I came back and I said, it's going to look spectacular. I don't know about the dialogue, though. Um, and, there was and dialogue lo- the day you were there? <laughs> Actually, no, there, were, there was genuinely just fighting in pants. <laughs> <Some> um, but, <laughs> fighting uh, in pants? Fighting in pants. Um, but, you know, I got my picture taken in front of a wall of dead bodies holding a severed foot. Um, it was a lot of fun. Um, but I was, These I was, junkets are getting more and more. <laughs> you know, throat, man, you. Hey, you've got to fight your way through to get there, <laughs> to get really good Take access. this, blogger! <laughs> I'll give you a last question. So yeah, so you, you you get an impression usually. You can certainly tell when something's really going to not work. It's harder to tell if something's absolutely going to fly because you generally only see what two scenes, two or three scenes mm. being filmed in a day. Um, so it, it's kind of hard to tell just from that shorter a space if it's really going to one hundred percent work. But I do think you get an an idea. Yeah, I think so. I mean, real absolute stinkers that I've been on where I've known it's going to be a stinker beforehand. Not a lot, although I was on the set of Year One a few uh, years ago. Yes, that was the Caveman movie. The Jack Black, Michael Cera uh, Caveman movie directed by the great Harold Ramis. And the set visit was fun and the interviews were good and it was, it was all okay. But the, the, the scene they were shooting, they seemed to be floundering a bit and there was uh, some <clears throat> encouraged improvisation which just wasn't going anywhere. And you know, you were just, I was just sitting there going, this isn't... This is a comedy, and this is—I haven't laughed once, and no one seems to be really getting the vibe here. So I had slight reservations about that one, and of course, it turned out to be not very good at all. So mm. that, that it's an interesting cool. fact that often uh, the worst directors are the best at hyping up their stuff. So I've 
come back from quite a few set visits that have the films have turned out to be absolutely wretched going oh i can't this actually could be really good and i did uh, transformers 2 revenge of the fallen and michael bay talked to very good game i was uh, out in egypt and uh, by the pyramids and he was going you know oh i know we've messed up some of the stuff in the first one we've got the effects right but we've got everything else wrong we're really going to fix everything and he was so he com- completely convinced me i went back going, oh this is going to be amazing <laughs> that was the time he outright lied wasn't it yes he did he, he said megatron is not in this movie yeah He's he's coming right down here. He's coming for you. He's bringing this big mate, the Dinobot. Indeed. Slag. Ali, have you been on anything that you thought might be a stinker? I've never been on a movie set in my entire life. No way. I've worked for Empire for over four years. I've never been on a movie set. You've been to Breaking Bad, though. I have been to Breaking Bad, and I knew it was going to be shit as soon as I got there. <laughs> I walked in and went, fuck me, they got Cranston. Oh, this is a dog. This guy. There's no Transformers here. This is, is going to be Where's terrible. his wig? Oh. You forgot your hair. Oh. Continuity is dreadful. There's just a bold man moaning about stuff. Yeah. This is going to be rubbish. They were showing me this little <laughs> cigarette, which apparently was important. Oh. Oh. And then I smoked it. <laughs> and now I'm dead. Do you haven't been in the movie set? I've never been on a movie set. I've been to, and this is this is a fact for you. I've been to a, a you know these junkets for animation set visits. So you visit the set where they drew it uh, or constructed it from magic. I don't know how it actually works. So I've done that. But I, Sir Alistair Lord Plum, have never been. We have to fix this. We do. Let's get Look, on that. Look, just pick a movie and go on it. Not one of the ones we want, obviously. All right, Batman vs Superman. <laughs> Batman vs Superman. Yeah. Yeah. Go on it. Just go right yes. now. I must say, I did do a set visit. It was in, um, it was near Farringdon, and it was in an alleyway. And the name of the film was The Deaths of Ian. And I had a feeling that one might not be brilliant. Um, and I don't think it ever came out. No, didn't it get re- uh, renamed? It's now called Gravity. <laughs> <laughs> the Deaths of Ian. The Deaths of Ian. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I try to be optimistic about every set that I go yeah. on. And, you know, I came back from the X-Files 2 going, oh, this is going to be amazing as well. And that one did not turn out to be amazing. Uh, but The Deaths of Ian, um, it was one of these where it's um, a film done by an, a big effects guy who's doing their first film um, as with Aragon, these films don't normally turn out that well. And it's about a bloke called Ian. He gets killed by a monster every day and then wakes up and gets killed by another monster. <laughs> that one... Uh, that's not a bad idea, actually. Really? That's kind yeah, of been done in a Supernatural idea. episode. Oh, has it? Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I think um, Gareth Edwards did a short once. This is way before he did Monsters. That was basically a guy who wakes up every day and it's the end of the world, but in a different way. So he wakes up one morning and it's a zombie apocalypse. He wakes up the next morning and it's a meteor. So he wakes up the next morning and it's a super volcano. I, I, I thought, oh, that's a really cool idea for for a feature. But Super Supernatural did something like that. Uh, it was called the Mystery Spot, and basically every time Dean died, it looped back around to the that morning, and Sam had to try and save his brother from dying again. Of course, again. this okay. is happening with what was once called "All You Need Is Kill," that mm. is now mm. called mm. "Tomorrow Is Gunning" or "Guns." So it's a good tomorrow. idea. Their mistake was putting the word "Ian" in <laughs> the title. <laughs> I think that's has, there, right. has there ever been a great film with the word "Ian" in the title? Uh, Jurassic Ian <laughs> Citizen Ian I'd the, go see Ian Malcolm 3D Ian Wars <laughs> Yes the That'd Ian be Wars. great yeah. <laughs> The great Ian Wars Of the Empire office When Freer and Nathan Tooled up And went at it This is based on Greek myth uh, In case we were wondering um, What's his chop Gets his heart pecked out Every morning 
Um, Prometheus gets his liver picked up. That's the one, liver, yeah. yeah. Prometheus. That, <laughs> I, that, that I prefer Watts' chop. <laughs> Ridley Scott's Watts' chop. Uh, right, I think we've... we've <laughs> right, I'm leaving. I'm we've talked to Superman. Batman versus Superman, just tell him that Empire sent you and you'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll get straight on. Uh, okay, next question is from uh, at Daniela Phillips, who asks, who would Darth Vader dress up as for Halloween? I've got a really good answer to this. I think there's only genuinely one serious choice. Bane. <laughs> you take off his helmet and he's pretty much there. I hate to agree with you, but you're absolutely right. <sighs> this, um, <laughs> that's a very good answer. I, I can't top that. I will say that this question uh, reminded me of the existence of the Peter Serenovich uh, sketch, Darth Vader in Love, which if you haven't seen it, go to YouTube, type in Vader in Love, and it, is, uh, it follows Darth Vader's attempts to woo a sort of Lady Vader. Uh, it's very funny. <laughs> go watch it. Anything that reminds us of the existence of Peter Serafin, which is a good thing. Now get on the podcast, <laughs> for God's sake, man. I've got a couple of other suggestions. I think if you could find a big enough suit, he could come as the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Oh. Just really go large, like kind of sumo suit big, and he could just walk in and, you know, you wouldn't need to talk because, you know, you couldn't talk if it was Stay Puft. Um, so that would work. He probably might get a little sweaty, but that should just, be fine. Just a scooch. Just a smidge. Do you guys dress up for Halloween? Do you ever do anything like that? Um... Yes, I do. Do you dress up as Mr. Tumnus? <laughs> dress up. What I tend to do, that scary character from your favourite horror movie, Mr. Tumnus. <laughs> the joke there, of course, is that I look just like Mr. Tumnus. And when we spoke to James McAvoy recently, I pointed out to him that I endured lots of, uh, lots of barbs from my co-people uh, when I was growing up because I looked just like Mr. Tumnus. I don't think you looked like Mr. Tumnus. I had long flowing locks and, and I had hooved feet. You do go topless all the time as well. That's true. You do have a freaky little flute. A freaky little flute. A freaky little you flute. You do have a freaky little flute. Are you referring to my... No, anyway. So, uh, uh, one of, what I'm trying to say is, um, yeah, I tend to go as a, as a King Boo uh, from uh, the Mario Kart uh, series. Really? He's a, he's a big floaty ghost. Yeah, no, but my other suggestion for Darth Vader to dress up is he should wear a hazmat suit, uh, a la Breaking Bad. Just put it over his head. He's already got the mask to go over, so he could just talk, say, you know, I'm breathing like this because I've got a mask on to stop the meth fumes from going into my system. Wow. Sensible. He could also go as the uh, breathing cover of Empire. Oh, amazing. <laughs> if you want that, to do that. That's a genuinely great idea. Thank you. Darth, if you're listening, we've got it solved. And we know you are, Darth. We know you're a big fan of the podcast, so uh, do write in and tell us how, you, how you're getting on with being dead and stuff. Uh, okay, let's move on to the next question. Uh, Nick, you don't dress up at Halloween, do you? No, I don't. I don't really. I, I once, uh, a couple of years back, almost went to a party as Jan Moir from the Daily Mail. But that didn't... <laughs> oh, Jan... God, no, that's seriously. too scary. But it was, uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't commit to the wig. All right, moving on swiftly. At film underscore in underscore 133 asks, what's your favourite movie sword fight? Helen? The Princess Bride. There we go. Come on. Yeah. Or, I will say as a close second, Cyrano de Bergerac, the poetry mm. sword fight is also absolutely astonishing. Does Roxanne count? Um, well, with skis and tennis racket <laughs> there are no swords really so I'm going to say no but okay. I do like Roxanne obviously yeah. Pierce Brosnan and Madonna in the <laughs> day. Um, you get that out of the way quickly the adventures of Robin Hood yes a yeah. staple uh, yeah. I'm going to throw in space balls your Schwartz uh, is <laughs> what's the exact line what's the Schwartz line the Schwartz no is idea. strong with you no your Schwartz is as big as mine let's oh. see how well you handle it I, f- I think is the word okay. um, but that's a that's a classic comedy fight um Speaking of comedy fights, Highlander. Uh, anything <laughs> from Highlander? Oh, the Kurgan first is a uh, yeah. good one. It, yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, you're right. That that one is good. But I think the opening is it in a car park? Yeah, that's 
Dan is truly preposterous. That um, film's gibberish. The, 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 the film is... The film is a scriptwriter having a heart attack about four times over, but um, I think it had a script. I think it actually genuinely did have a script, and then it just got shredded. You know, oh. Connery probably sliced it a bit with the sword and went, "Oh, there's paper everywhere. I'll just, I'll just stick it together with some glue. Oh, it makes perfect sense now. Glue, glue. It doesn't have a sibling sound. Why am I saying that? The Duelists has three very good. Yes, I mean to get back to reality here, um, has three very good uh, sword fights, uh, mm. which kind of shot over the shoulder, which uh, it's quite interesting. Hellboy Two also has um, mm, does has his nibs um, mm. doing lots of. Water droplet slicing with a spear. Mm, Luke Goss. Scott Pilgrim versus the World has an yeah. excellent sword fight involving a flaming sword. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon has a, a couple of belters. Uh, I'm gonna. Can we, can we talk about laser swords? Can we put Star Wars in here? Yes, yeah. we can. What's your best Star Wars laser sword lightsaber battle? I used to say the one where we heard the Duel of the Fates in the Phantom Menace, but I've seen a video recut of it, which shows that really it's just three people doing a dance <laughs> now honestly I, I almost don't want you to see this video because when you look at it they change the music and they slow it down at certain points and say that had never any opportunity to strike any other human there was no room there was at least a foot gap that was shot this way this was shot that way here you can see him backflipping why is he backflipping it's that sort of thing why are you ruining magic? I'm saying there's a video out there. It's probably totally there's, wrong. There's very little for me to cling on to anymore with the Phantom Menace, and you're just you're prying my fingers away from the clifftop. Please, please don't do that. Yeah, I love that. I love that that laser sword fight, and I'm calling them laser swords deliberately to piss the fat boys off. Um, yeah, I will say uh, I love, uh, I still love it. Attack of the Clones. I don't care. Yes, it's not a five-star film, what, but Yoda, Yoda versus Dooku. Yeah. Yoda versus Dooku is a great lightsaber fight. Uh, and I think uh, Luke and Vader at the end of Return of the Jedi and in Empire Strikes Back. Is and just Obi-Wan, Vader in, in Star Wars. Yeah, but that's, well. that's just, that is that's that's magic. It's, it's that's slower and more stately, but That's I an like old it. man They kind of fall into around. each other. Yeah. I still like it. Shut up. I think they should have just scrapped like kids in the playground. And I want to give a final that. shout out to the Ooh. singing sword from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Why not? Oh, can yes. anyone say who voices that sword? You. Yes, it you, was you me. Can say. You can say. <laughs> it's my moment to shine. Frank Sinatra. That's no, the voice, that's the voice of Frank Sinatra because it has the blue eyes. Mm-hmm. Yes, you bloody fact nuke me. I just fact nuke you from orbit. Frank Sinatra has had a bottle of Jack Daniels named in his honor. Have you seen that? Frank Daniels. Frank Daniels, Jack Sinatra, Fact Sinatra. Um, there you go. Fact. Frank Sinatra has the same. Um, wait for it. Uh, same hand condition as Bill Nighy, <laughs> but in his left hand. <laughs> Final gonna... fact: Frank Sinatra was a singer. Okay, let the laws out of the way. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can uh, Twitter us on the Twitter device. We're at Empire Magazine. The hashtag is Empire Podcast. Otherwise, we won't see it. We're at Empire Magazine also on Facebook, and you can email us podcast at empireonline.com as well. Now we have a competition. Ooh. That's exciting, isn't it? Uh, because our lovely sponsors, Beyond Two Souls, have been kind enough to give us two copies of the game to give away each week. And all you have to do to be in with a chance of winning one is to answer this tried and true, ridiculously easy question. TM, copyright, all rights reserved. The ridiculously easy question is, Ellen Page, star of Beyond Two Souls, first rose to fame playing the lead role in which Jason Reitman movie? So send in your answer with your name, your address and your details to podcast at empireonline.com and we'll reveal the winners next week. Do you know the answer to that one, Ali? Uh, do you know I do, actually, yeah. 
Uh, it's time now for our first guest. Garth Evans shot right to the top of our favouritist directors in the whole wide world list. We do have one with his blistering work on last year's instant action classic, The Raid. Now that Jakarta-based Welshman is back, back, back with a brutal deluxe segment in the found footage horror sequel VHS 2, which is out on Monday. On a rare trip back to the UK, Evans popped in to tell us all about that, plus, of course, an update on The Raid 2, Brandal, which is currently in post-production, awaiting a release next year. He was talking to me and Nick. Enjoy. By the way, before you listen to this Gareth Evans interview, the sound quality is a little bit shonky, so apologies for that. Anyway, enjoy. We're delighted to be joined in the pod booth by the director of The Raid, uh, soon to be The Raid 2, Barandal, and a segment in VHS 2 is Mr. Gareth Evans. Welcome back, sir. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. Good to be back. Are you jet lagged? Because you've flown in literally a few hours ago, haven't you? Yeah, I got here this morning, so a little bit jet lag, but I slept off on the plane, so... Okay, that's good. It should be semi-coherent. Yeah, well, that's more than we'll, we will achieve, <laughs> as our sentence just proved. Uh, so, you're here for VHS 2 with, uh, yep. with Frankfest. Uh, what have you unleashed upon us? Um, basically, yeah, we, we basically, we, me and uh, a good friend of mine in Indonesia called uh, Timo Chayanto, mm-hmm. you'd be very happy that I pronounce his surname correctly, because <laughs> no one ever fucking does, um, we, we both got kind of contacted separately by uh, Roxanne, who was one of the producers on VHS2, and uh, she contacted us separately to kind of do a segment for it, they wanted to do something that was outside of America, which, you know, everything in the first one was always all local to America. Yeah. And um, basically, what happened was me and him kind of like known each other for about mm, five, six years ever since I moved out there. And so we've been looking for a project that we could work on together. And nothing kind of came up. And we were talking about you know, whether I could kind of produce something for him to direct, blah, 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 at some time. And, but we wanted to see what, what we were like collaborating first. And so this was like the perfect opportunity. It was like short film format, something we could kind of play with and experiment with. And then, you know, also the fact that we were making it for the US, not for Indonesia, it meant that it freed us up then to kind of do whatever we wanted to do. So we could really, really like, you know, push the boundaries in ways that we would never get away with with the censorship back home. What's the most crazy thing that that is in the short, in your opinion? There's some pretty wild stuff going on in that, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, It kind of all stems from the fact that like me and Timo kind of, we're the worst people to kind of pair up together because <laughs> we both of us have a very sort of you know vague idea of where where the line is and where you don't cross it. Basically, where we had this one day and one of the scenes in the movie is basically one of the characters running down a corridor and in the script it was just run down a corridor, get outside the house and then get into a car and drive away. And that's all it was in the script. We had nothing else. And then on the day of the shoot, we're like, you know, we gotta we gotta make this more interesting. It's gonna be a bit more exciting. We need to put more obstacles. So then we started playing around with the idea of, oh, well, that classroom full of dead kids, maybe they could be reanimated. And then we were like, well, outside of that, what else we could do? Well, we had a room full of like four or five guys. And then Tim was like, oh, great, we could have one of them have his head ripped off and then thrown against his window. And we were like, okay, what about that nice old couple that we saw in the other room first of all? And they were just like tenderly stroking each other's face. And then obviously we decided to have them, you know, uh, Hmm, how can I say, have a tender moment together, but like, you know, in, in not the most tender way. And so I think that was kind of like the idea of the craziest thing of it all was the idea that we just kind of like snowballed these ideas. And instead of one of us sort of stepping back and saying, oh, maybe we shouldn't go there, we ended up just like a bunch of fucking jocks high fiving each other about how cool it was. And so, yeah, we, we kind of gave our assistant director and our makeup artist, Sally, like the worst hell possible because they were just suddenly having to kind of turn around from what was supposed to be. Uh, a two-hour scheduled scene to become in, you know, a four to five-hour shoot where they had to do makeup on twenty kids, on five guys, on a couple, and you know, set dress and then everything else, just because we felt like it at the time. <laughs> so it was it was a bit crazy, yeah. 
But was this a bit of a palate cleanser for you between the raid one and the raid two? Just yeah, to kind of it was. It was. Uh, um, it was. It was an opportunity to kind of like experiment with different things as well because, like, the hardest thing for us was like looking at it from a technical viewpoint. Like, without giving too much away, although I probably already have. But um, you know, by the end of the film, we're left with one character. Um, we're left with no other cameras except for his button cam, and you know, we had to stay with him for the last fifteen. Oh, sorry, last ten minutes, maybe last seven minutes, without it feeling like there's a, a cut, because uh, I know like some of the other guys would do things like they'd have that that character's perspective, and then they do like a time cut to somewhere further down. But we kind of made the choice like, okay, once we're in there, we don't do any time cuts, and so the the last five six minutes is just all one one shot. Um, so we had to find a way to kind of make that work for us, um, and what helped that that kind of helped me then ready for doing Brandel in a weird way was that we were looking at ways that we could edit to make it feel like it was all one shot. And, um, you know, whip pans, whip tilts, uh, you know, matching frames here and there. We had to combine four different locations for that building because they were all in different parts of Indonesia, different parts of Jakarta. So to kind of combine that, we had to find um, basic architecture that looked similar so that if you turn around in one spot and then we'll uh, cut to the next location, that you won't feel it. So there was a lot of like different techniques like that that we ended up using in Brandel later on. But Brandel is, uh, I believe, the most ambitious shoot in Indonesian film history. Is that <laughs> certainly the longest as well? It's is the that... most fucking tiring. <laughs> I tell you that much right now. Are you still filming it right now? Um, are, we, are we in the movie? Is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got, with a machete in. <laughs> I got a crew call in about two hours, basically. <laughs> now we we wrapped about we we officially wrapped about uh, two weeks ago, but then we had a few pickup days left to do for the car chase, and we did that last weekend. So mm. officially, technically, now we're supposed to be done. <laughs> but uh, I know we still got one more day of elements to do. So yeah, <laughs> it's something that'll never wrap. I remember being on set, and uh, it was day one hundred for you guys. Yeah. And I remember a tweet from Mark Webb on the same day: "Amazing Spider-Man Two hit day one hundred." Yeah. And they wrapped on day one hundred, and you still had about about thirty-five days to go. Yeah, it was so, thirty-two in the end, actually. <laughs> okay, okay. So you, but you're happy with it? Uh, things are. Yeah, really, really happy. I mean, it's obviously it's it's way way bigger than we thought it would be. I don't think any of us kind of had that kind of anticipation going in how 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 taxing it would be. Uh, you know, th the thing is for this kind of shoot though as well, like this kind of thing hasn't been done in Indonesia before. So especially like the car chase stuff, like we, we, we learned by, uh, by sort of, you know, just by doing it, how difficult it would be to get the permission to kind of close those roads down. And, and you know, now as a result of closing those roads down, I've learned every single swear word in Indonesia because they just keep getting <laughs> thrown at us from the side of the cars that are annoyed that we've stopped traffic for a while. But it's really tough. It's really tough. I mean, like when you when you close down the roads for a shoot in Indonesia, like you don't get your full day of shooting. You don't get like a full day of shooting time. We were lucky if we got about sixty percent per day of what we would have in terms of shooting hours, because you know you stop and then you do a take, and then all of a sudden you have to up open the road to let the traffic back through again, and then to close it back down it takes another fifteen minutes. So then like each setup just keeps taking longer and longer and longer to get. Uh, if somebody wants to pass through, like a like a politician or someone who has to get to a meeting, mm. yeah, you have to close down for an hour while they leave their house so there's no traffic leading up to them passing you. Then you can start up again, and then if that happens like more than once a day, then you start losing hours and hours and hours of shooting time. Then so, yeah, it's it's like it's an uphill struggle from the beginning. Never mind the fact that we've never done it before. I guess you you kind of shot the first one guerrilla style on yeah. the down low. Like with this one, are people much more aware of you? You kind of become famous in a way. For me, I'm, it's fine. For Eco, he gets a lot more, like, recognized a lot more now. Uh, Joe especially, Joe. I mean, Joe's not in the sequel, obviously, for, for various reasons why. 
but like since Joe did Fast Six now, like he's just exploded in Indonesia. It's crazy. Like you know, I can't even meet him for lunch anymore without like fifteen people asking me to take a photograph of him with them. So yeah, so uh, yeah, he's 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 kind of launched now. He's he's doing really good. Um, but yeah, the guys get recognized a lot. Uh, well, what we've started to notice as well is like some of our fans, like uh, there's like a couple of like forums out there in the group. There's like a, a, a group of fans they call themselves Parantau, which is like um, they they have an official Twitter account and stuff. Like this is really cute. Like wow. they followed us since the first movie, since Parantau, and they've been supporting us ever since. Yeah. Um, sometimes like so maybe someone will find out exactly where we're shooting, and then one of them will go to the set and and, and try to get information about what we're filming. So they'd be like, oh, they, they did, they ju there was just this shot of the car driving down the street. They took two hours to set it up. What's going on? <laughs> so <laughs> I start to be aware of, oh, maybe I should work harder on this now. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's interesting to kind of see, like, and they'd all kind of guess the plot, trying to figure out who does what, who's the bad guy, who's, who's going to get killed first, who's going to die last. Right. All this stuff, they're trying to figure out how it all makes sense. And I'm just, I'm just begging them to please just wait until we release the film. Cause oh the raid was somewhat under the radar. Yeah, and this this is no longer that. Yeah, you know, not just in Indonesia, but here, America. Yeah, I think I think yeah, we've lost our element of surprise, I guess now. Yeah, and so to a certain degree, like you kind of like, um, how can I say, like we like it, it's 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 not enough for it to just be a bunch of like you know creative ways of killing people. Like you know, like you know, in the first one we had that, and you know, we had this sort of we had the bonus of that sort of like uh, stripped down plot, but then like a, a like a single location set in, and it kind of it 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 moved at a certain pace, had a certain energy. So for this one, it was like, okay, well, we're not going to just copy the first one again. We're not going to do the same story again, and we're not going to do the same, uh, you know, just just go for... We can't rely on just, okay, this is an interesting way to kill someone. Yeah. It has to mean a little more this time. So we developed the story more, uh, developed the characters out more, fleshed them out more, and hopefully we kind of give something which is, like, you know, uh, different from the first one, but in a, in a nice way, different, you know? <laughs> We we interviewed Danny Boyle on the podcast earlier yeah, this year, I listened. and I think I tweeted you afterwards yes. to, to tell you. But uh, he talked about going to the cinema on his own and watching it and being blown away by it. Have you had any interaction with him and other other directors who have got in touch and, and said they love it? Uh, like I mean, so, like it, yeah. When when you hear that from someone like Danny Boyle, it kind of like takes you back a little because you know. I mean, when I I remember when I first saw like Shallow Grave, like how much that blew me away, and you know, and Train Spot, and then as well the followed after that. I mean, it's like. That was the whole the exciting thing of you know being being in UK and then seeing the British films could be that exciting, could be that thrilling, and and you know play within genre as well. And that was what was so exciting. So to kind of like get a comment like that from him, kind of like knocked me for six. I was like blown away by that. Um, but yeah, sometimes every now and then some people will kind of reach out and mention little things, and like it's been bizarre to see uh, like certain filmmakers then kind of do their own little riff on stuff that we did. So to kind of become referenced then and other things like there was a an episode of Arrow on TV where they did the head smashing down the tiles on the oh, wall, really? yeah. Really? And then um, uh, uh, the Evil Dead remake with the machete and the, the little wall crawl space and stuff. Like, and, yeah. uh, like we had little, little things like this and stuff, but, like, but the thing is like it's cool to kind of have that because like, the guys who are responsible for both projects kind of like reached out and said to us like, you know, oh, like, you know, uh, thank you. It was, it was like it was an inspiration for this little piece of like uh, this little scene of our film, and I'm always telling them, "Well, you guys did it better. Well done." It's <laughs> <So. laughs> interesting though because um, uh, I'll let you go in a second. But it, it's interesting talking about Hollywood's reaction to this because, for example, another British character who made a splash with uh, with his you know not his first movie because obviously the Raider wasn't your first movie, but um, was Gareth Edwards with Monsters, and then he immediately went on to make. Godzilla. Hmm. So, did Hollywood come calling after the raid? Did they dangle things in front of your eyes that 
I can see from your face they did. <laughs> but tell us anything you want to talk about <laughs> on the record. We're listening. Go be careful. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I got, I got off like a few things. And I get off like every now and then I kind of get sent a script for something, and um, like it depends if I how, how I react to it. I think um, like my heart was always set on doing Brandall because it was something that had been there for four or five uh, for, for three or four years. I wanted to do that first. So to kind of you know to kind of not seize that opportunity to do it was too big a risk for me. Mm. I didn't want to kind of push it aside and do something in the US and then not be able to do Brandle. Mm. So to know that Brandle could be greenlit immediately, that was it. I was like, I'm doing that next, and then after that, I'll see what I do after that. I'll see what project I do after that. Then maybe something in UK, maybe something in US. I've had like scripts sent over, and then sometimes it's interesting to see like some of those scripts would be sent over like maybe about a year or two ago, like a year ago maybe, and then you see then like you know uh, someone else is lined up to direct those projects now and like um maybe like nine times out of ten i'm always like oh cool yeah i'd go see that if that guy was directing that movie you know and stuff like that so yeah it's it's an interesting experience it's kind of it's very flattering first of all to kind of like be like you know uh like sent those scripts sure. um but yeah you get some really good ideas and then you get some not so great ideas but without going into details uh or maybe naming names uh, <laughs> for example i think i think edgar wright was over things like failure to launch Oh, okay. It's just you know one of these things, not like the other. You know what I mean? You wouldn't look at Shaun the Dead and think. Yeah, I don't like see the link to those fluffy rom com. <laughs> so, did you get offered anything that was like out of the completely out of left field? And um, like without without sort of saying specifics, uh-huh. I, I get offered things which were kind of like you know, um, like franchises and maybe like they exist for kids. Uh-huh. But then, but we want to go dark with it, and it's like and you're like, how how do I turn that dark? It's like without not going into details. I think I've told you this like before in in private. You told me one thing, but it wasn't. It wasn't I don't think it's the one you were going. You're talking oh, okay, about. Okay, okay, okay. Percy Jackson and the Gigantic Body Count. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Percy Jackson versus Mad Dog. But uh, <laughs> I'd pay good money to see that one. My money would be a Mad Dog. <laughs> but also, the um, is there any progress with the um, the American? remake of uh yeah i mean as far as i know they've kind of um they've they're almost done with the script now i think that's kind of getting locked down i think they're talking to a few directors at the moment like um outside of that still don't know yet i mean it's still up in arms but like they're they're still up in the air sorry but they're kind of aiming i think sometime early next year um but yeah my i've kind of been so swamped with brandle that i haven't really had a chance to really sort of like you know uh get involved so much Mm -hmm. with that one and to be honest i think maybe you know it's better that i kind of just let them do their thing yeah because you know if, if i start going back now to the raid after doing brandle as well i'm like yeah i don't know how to do that yet so yeah <laughs> but if you did go back is there anything in the raid that you think you could improve upon if you got a second to go at it uh, you, if it, when you look at it is there anything you go oh maybe a couple couple yeah. of scenes yeah um some, some stuff was more like you know I wish I had more budget so I could do something different with like one of the action scenes or something. But um, the big one would have been uh, the refrigerator explosion, um, because when that that refrigerator blows out, we had that gas canister inside the refrigerator. Now, my initial idea was that that gas canister would kind of like spin around that corridor, like hitting people, and then launch someone over the balcony, and we'd see them fall down like twenty floors <laughs> onto the bottom. Or something. That was my initial idea. But then, like, I took one look. I told my producer, and he took one look at me, and he was like. Just have them fall down. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. But um, you could yeah. George Lucas it. In the yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. With the dance it. number as well. Yeah. <laughs> nope, nope. That'd be amazing. Mad Dog shoots first. Well, Gareth, it's been a pleasure, man. And uh, best luck to get them with the jet lag. And Thank you so much. Yeah, Thank looking you. forward to it. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Okay, movie news time now. What have you guys got for me?
very quickly just to begin with gravity is doing exceedingly well over in the usa land it's not coming out in the uk for a couple of weeks november 8th but it took home in its first weekend and this is a non-franchise movie it's not based on a book it's got no stars <laughs> it's got a couple of stars in the sky and also in i'm so sorry uh, sandra bullock uh, is in this uh, film by alfonso cuaron george clooney is also in this and ed oh. harris uh, yes okay but yes, it is a film about people lost in space, but importantly has nothing to do with lost in space. It took in, in its first weekend, $55.5 million. That is a huge and record-breaking sum uh, for a movie released at that time, which is, as I say, non-franchise. So that is just something of note. I think this one will run and run and run and run and run. It is a very cinematic experience, and I can see why word of mouth is doing wonders for it. I can't wait to see it again. I've already yeah, seen it. Still really well in IMAX and 3D, isn't it? Over yeah. there yeah. as well. It really benefits from being in cinemas. I wish people would stop talking about this film until I've bought my IMAX 3D tickets, because really it's very upsetting. I'm worried that you know people will realise that it's coming, that it's good, and get in there first and buy tickets. You okay. can tell this, this movie is is already the uh, the subject of a a backlash, a campaign in the states to kind of take it down a notch or two in case it might. Oh God, God forbid! Can you imagine a science fiction movie might win some Oscars? Uh, so uh, there's a, an astonishing campaign, mainly led by our old friend and nemesis Jeff Wells of HollywoodElsewhere.com, <sighs> whose main beef with this movie is, and I kid you not, we'll discuss Gravity in full when it comes out on November eighth. And we also have interviews with Alfonso Cuaron and David Heyman coming up, which is going to be fantastic. But his main beef with this movie is that when Jeopardy strikes, and you see it in the trailer, Sandra Bullock's character uh, is launched into space and untethered from the things she's tethered to, you'd panic at that moment, wouldn't you? I, I think you'd I make, would, You'd yeah. make a few noises, you'd go, ah, and stuff. Yeah. Well, that's Jeff Wells' beef with the movie. That she goes, ah, a lot, and she screams and she yells and she panics like any normal so human for, being So, for Jeff yeah. Wells, in addition to never spending more than three minutes in the shower yeah. um, and never laughing audibly at anything funny, yeah. um, you should also not audibly react yeah. to mortal peril. Yes. It's not cool, man. I it's think not cool. There's another kind of... Not backlash, but I think certain scientists who can count and measure distances and know where the rulers are kept in the drawer have worked out that possibly some of the things that happen in this science fiction film, though based in part on things that may possibly occur in reality, does things that would not or could not be done considering where things are in space, satellites, etc. Yeah. That is as it is. There's no getting away from that, but sometimes you have to just uh, let go. Yeah. But anyway... So that was Gravity. My other story is that Quentin Tarantino never wanted to let the fact that it's not quite the end of the year stop him summarising the whole of the year has given us his best films of 2013. So far? So far. So this far. is following on from our discussion, obviously. not He didn't write this list because he heard the podcast and went, well, I need to give them my top ten list to prove the Empire Podcast team that there are some good movies that have come out. But anyway, here they are, the top ten. I'm going to very quickly rattle them off. Mm-hmm. I'm going to leave out the... Go from ten down to one. Ten down to one, of course, yeah. yeah. And I won't be giving you the directors. You, you know, We'll talk about them if we want to. All right. Number ten, This Is The End. Number nine, The Lone Ranger. Number eight, Kick-Ass 2. Number seven, Gravity. Oh. Oh. Number six, Francis Ha. Ooh. Number five, Drinking Buddies. Number <laughs> Nick just made a face. four, The Conjuring. Number three, Blue Jasmine. Yes. Number two, Before Midnight. Uh-huh. And number one, Afternoon Delight. At uh-huh. the moment, as things stand, my top ten of the year isn't formed yet. But I've got a feeling that QT and I are going to be overlapping on just one film <laughs> at the moment. 
That's right. Drinking buddies is the <laughs> sensation of the year. Wow, that's that's an eclectic list. Really? That's almost as bad shit insane as uh, some of Stephen King's uh, top ten of the year lists that he used to do for EW. I'm very surprised actually not to see The World's End on there. That is interesting, especially as Kick-Ass 2 got on there. There's exploitation movies in here, so I can I can see where Francis Ha, for example. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's a real mix. Like Blue Jasmine, Francis Ha, I can see them being in a double bill, possibly um, you know, triple bill with Before Midnight. But uh, Kick-Ass 2, and this is the end. Um, I don't know. Q2 is QT, and he is what he is. I remember uh, watching Gravity and thinking this is only marginally better than Kick-Ass 2. <laughs> Um, I watched uh, This Is The End actually over the weekend because I was reviewing the DVD and there's a lot of really good stuff in there. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm kind of prepared to cut that one some slack a little bit. I Let's think remember his fun. top 10 of 2011 had The Three Musketeers in it. Oh, oh um, why did you bring that? So, favourite film of 2011 was Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which, you know, I yeah. actually really love that film. Attack the Block in there, Warrior, Red State, mm. uh, Moneyball, Midnight in Paris. So, yeah, he likes to mix it up. I like that he does this and he gets yeah. people talking about it he gets people interested in these films that wouldn't necessarily get that much interest and I'm glad that he's put The Lone Ranger in there because I think that's the kind of movie that once it comes out on Blu-ray maybe they'll have the opportunity to do a little bit more with it I think it's going to become a little bit of a cult that film I really do because I, I find it incredibly long-winded and I think it could have lost about 45 minutes and been, been a much much better movie but what I really like about it is the weirdness and the off-kilterness and the, and the kind of crazy stuff that it does um, so maybe, and I'm sure that's why it's on his list. So maybe the, you know, there's there's going to be a little bit of a softening of attitudes towards that as time goes on. Join the debate on the Empire Online uh, news story, which has this, where our commenters have gone to town on this list. <laughs> and the more the more I interact with everyone who reads our stuff, hello, uh, the more I realise that you guys are joyfully uh, insane. So thank you very <laughs> much for giving me uh, the opportunity to read your thoughts on the comments. So I have Leprechaun news, as I so often do. Uh, Peter Dinklage to star in R-rated Leprechaun comedy. Apparently he's going to play a sharp-tongued man who tells people he's a real Leprechaun, and producers say that the tone will be bad Santa-like, although he will not play an elf. Not even an angry elf. <laughs> not even an angry one. It's, this is interesting because he's won an Emmy and a Golden Globe recently for his work as Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones. And he's going to be uh, Bolivar Trask, which I've given an accent for no reason. Why am Bolivar Trask? In X-Men Days of Future Past, coming out in May next year. So, you know, he's in the spotlight. Now is his chance. And I think if he can get a good comedy, R-rated good comedy, that this could just seal the deal. He's been brilliant since forever, but The Station Agent is a fantastic film. If you haven't seen it already, please do check it out. Uh, it's a three-hander uh, based around uh, a station. And... He's great. He's got such a great presence. And when we were in Comic-Con, the guys there, like, the fans of his were in Legion and they were screaming his name. What I would like to see is a kind of franchise mashup between this and the Leprechaun series with Warwick Davis. And I think that's, that's ultimately where they're going to be heading with this, <laughs> is to bring the two together. Freddy versus Jason. That kind of thing. It's been too long since we had a Warwick Davis Leprechaun movie, I guess, maybe? No, it's not. No. Didn't he, now, Helen, you talked to him... Uh, earlier this year yeah right. And fantastic he, uh, lengthy <laughs> podcast which you should check out you should certainly check it out but did he not say during that that there will, there's kind of plans for a Leprechaun movie I believe there are that they're trying to get another one off the ground he's about to star in Spamalot uh, Warwick Davis as uh, Patsy which is a role played by Terry Gilliam in Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh, so go and check that one out it's, at, it's on in the theatre in London what do you want I'm not Google hmm Okay. Anyway, I think we should clear this up. This is not a leprechaun movie. I think it's about a person who lives 
who like a normal human uh, who happens to tell people perhaps in bars that he is a real leprechaun what do you think his motive is for that it could be a line it could be a really bad line to a woman in a bar goes up to a hot lady and goes you may not realise this but I leprechaun she goes really and you go yeah and takes out some glitter from his pocket and goes woo well I think if it's a bad Santa tone it's either to get money or to get laid so presumably it's one of those two scenarios absolutely Uh, Helen what do you got hi um, so masters of the universe coming back potentially Uh, Terry Rossio has now been handed the job of trying to write a new script Uh, this has been in discussions in development for quite some time there was of course that movie back in 1987 with Dolph Lundgren as He-Man and Courtney Cox and Courtney Cox Cox as He-Man yeah Yeah. Yeah. Um, she was a left bicep that didn't really happen. Um, in recent years, uh, Joel Silver's been trying to get it back on the big screen um, at Warner Brothers, but then now the, the new version is actually at Columbia, and it's going to be Eternia-based. There's going to be none of this faffing about to Earth nonsense. Uh, John M. Chu is, it was down to direct it, but at the moment it doesn't have a director. So the idea is, I guess, that, that Rossio produces something that's kind of good enough and juicy enough to get somebody back on board. He, of course, has lots and lots of experience with this kind of thing. He's done The Lone Ranger and, of course, Pirates of the Caribbean and Zorro and so on. So he knows how to make an obsolete franchise good again, I think it's fair to say. So he's on his own. He doesn't have his writing partner. No, it's just Terry Rossio. He's been mentioned, not Ted Elliott as well, who, of course, did those movies with him. Um, They do work apart as well, you know. Okay. So it's not... I don't think there's been a breakup or anything, but, uh, yeah, it could be... Could be interesting, could be just ridiculous, because let's face it, you know, He-Man kind of is. Um, John M. Chu is the guy the who best. did G.I. Joe Retaliation most recently. That is right, yes. And he did the step-up movies before that, is that right? Yes, he is. So I wonder, not that I'm particularly invested in this... Um, if He-Man will dance. If He-Man will dance. Well, he's off it now, so I'm kind of... What I'm trying to say is, without being rude, I might be kind of pleased that he's off this one. I wasn't that impressed with Retaliation and uh, I think somebody else may do a better job. I think, actually, in fairness, John M. Chu is a pretty good director. Um, his step-up movies are okay. Um, but, no, he's got a sense of kind of pace and, and you know, time and so on. So, I, I, yeah. Is there a wider question here? Should they do it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Has it do we really need on? a Masters of the Universe movie? I would, I mean... Yes, no, we don't. But that could be the you know a question that we ask of virtually anything. So um, yeah, but most things have a chance of being good. <laughs> Maybe this will be hilariously bad. Well, that's pretty much. You would have to say going down the comedic route might be one way to kind of rescue this. I mean, I loved weirdly enough, I did love this cartoon when I was a kid. But uh, and I used to have some action figures and a uh, Castle Grayskull uh, playset. Yeah, but. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But then it, maybe if you maybe you play on the ridiculousness, maybe you do a sort of a twenty-one Jump Street approach. Maybe you yeah. cast Channing Tatum as He-Man and The Rock as Man at Arms, and yeah. just go to town. Yeah. Okay. Good. No. Yeah. You actually, got me around that. That was that was quick. This is um, fanfic. Who's uh, who's Skeletor? Skeletor. Where did it come about? <laughs> yeah. He's just like the bad guy to sure, isn't he? Really. Well, John Hawks. John Hawks. Oh, well, that's good. Yes. All right. Interesting. Let's see how that one progresses with great interest. Okay. A file under Green Lantern 2 and Battleship 2 for that one, I think. Uh, anything else? That's all from me. That's all from you, and that's all from Movie News. Time for another interview now. Uh, Douglas Spooth is one of the fastest rising actors in Britain. He was excellent in the recent TV adaptation of Great Expectations, and he tackles another classic this week, becoming the first actor since Leonardo DiCaprio to play Romeo 
in a new adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. He popped into the pod booth to have a good old natter with Helen. Just Helen, all in her lonesome, staring into Douglas Booth's eyes. Let's see how that turned out, shall we? You've just done Great Expectations before this. When you heard they were doing Romeo and Juliet, were you a bit sort of, you know, immediately excited, immediately kind of trepidatious? How did you... I think intimidated at first. Mm. It's hard not to be. Uh, I think because Romeo and Juliet comes with some baggage. So for me, at first it was very intimidating, but I just wanted to sort of grab all that baggage and throw it out the window and sort of start afresh. And you both, I mean, Hayley especially, but you as well, I mean, you're kind of younger than some takes on the characters have been, so it kind of, I mean, it's closer to the play, really, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, Hayley was 15 when we shot and Mm. I was 19. So, yeah, it was. And it, it was kind of, I think that lent something to the movie. It sort of lent a different sort of take on it. It was more like an innocent take. And it was it was it was kind of really interesting to come from it from that point of view. This is uh, obviously Julian Fellows did this adaptation, um, so it's a little bit different from some of the ones we've seen in the past. What were the the major changes that you noticed? Well, I think they wanted to be able to bring it to an audience that sometimes wouldn't otherwise give it a chance, I mm. suppose. So Julian kind of did the adaptation, and in that, I mean, the play is the the play on stage is about three and a half hours long far too long for a film and it could have been even longer when Shakespeare first put it on and it was sort of just it was a very different thing when Shakespeare wrote it people would go see a play and they would they'd be there for about three and a half four hours and they'd eat they'd drink they'd laugh they'd talk over a bit and then everyone would go shh 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 for the good bits and it would (laughs) it'd just be a very different thing I mean the Juliet would have been played by a boy yep so it's a very different thing for us now to have to put this into like something in a cinematic medium so what Julian did I think I think he did pretty well was sort of like take the story and craft it into like engaging cinematic journey that I think was slightly more accessible but still didn't lose the important stuff. I thought it was a great supporting cast in general. Damien Lewis as well, Damian fantastic. Le- he was great. He, he was brought, he so brought real humour and heart to that role because Capulet but, can be a bit dry and be a scary. bit dry and that's exactly nail on the head there. Humour and heart and he, he just does that flawlessly. Mm. It helps that he has that ball cut which certainly adds humour. Yeah, yeah <laughs> he wanted that because there's a period cut so he sort of had that he called himself penis head. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas the young kids got the sort of slightly longer, shaggier, more yeah. Shakespearean looking yeah. hair or something. Yeah, I mean, that that was all of the stuff was taken from like paintings of the period. So they were very, Carlo was very specific that he wanted everything to be like correct in a way that it could be in that era. And that was very traditional for like the Lord's accounts of those times to have that sort of pudding bowl sort of cut that he had. <laughs> yeah, I think he was the one that was like, no, I really think I should do it. I really think I should go for it. And then as soon as had it cut, that like, bloody hell, I've got to live with this now. Yeah, poor guy. And just to move on a bit to the locations and everything, I mean, you were in Italy shooting, which isn't always the case for, for mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet adaptations, and there was obviously a lot of location work. What what was the kind of ratio of stage to location? I would say about 90 to 10%. Wow. Or maybe ni- like to 80, but max. Yeah. I, I, most of it was locations. We were fortunate enough that you know, we were in Ver- Rome to start with, then we were in Verona and we were in Mantova. And it it's stunning there, and it lends so much. But yeah, I mean, the stage work we did, I think the the crypt was a stage. Mm-hmm. I was thinking it had to be because there were big flames. There were big big, and, fl- big flames, and yeah, that that was why. I mean, he, Carlo wanted these, you know, to be sort of lined with flames. And I imagine you, I don't know if you remember the sacristy scene after I killed Tybalt, and I'm so we're sort of in this monastery, and it's the most beautiful monastery outside of Rome, up in these mountains, and um, it's sort of dug into the the mountainside, but. Our DOP, David Tatsell, was allowed 25 candles to light it. Wow. Because of the frescoes, and it's lit beautifully, but it's the frescoes are just so precious, there's just n- heat's not allowed to be put in there because it'll just ruin it. So there was often a lot of pressure from that. Mm. 
How about the costumes as well? Because um, myself and my colleague who saw it last night, we were kind of talking about it looked like they were difficult to fight in. Yeah, they were really difficult. I mean, there was many times that my sort of trousers got split from the top of my crotch <laughs> right to the back. And the amount of time poor costume ladies had to sew up my crotch and just be lying there. Yeah, they were they were slightly difficult. I mean, once you got it on, it was, it was a bit like armour. It was sort of, to get it on was really tricky and difficult and to go to the toilet was really difficult. But actually, like, once you had it on, it was sort of, it, it kind of like functioned quite well as a mm. piece of armour. Only It was only like the trousers... I mean, I had multiple different versions of the trousers being made throughout the movie. I was like, okay, I've got to do a riding scene tomorrow. I- I'm not going to be able to get on this horse. Like, you know, you get on, it's like... Rawr. So, um, yeah. Um, tell me about uh, the director. Carlo is Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, on one hand, I imagine that would make him perhaps, and maybe I'm wrong on this, less familiar with the, the language, but presumably more familiar with the culture of the original story. So was there a... Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great observation. Yes, he, he had a great understanding about Italy, a great understanding about the place we were creating the story, and a great love for it as well. And his, his sort of, his visual eyes, and the way he sort of frames it all, and sort of, it's stunning. And um, he, he knows how to get the most out of a place he's grown up and loved for a long time. But yeah, for him, it was, you know, the language it was something, you know, that he probably hadn't grown up in the same way, or didn't have the same familiarity and I mean he speaks perfect English but so for him it was always about you know it's about what comes from inside yeah. before anything else and it seemed like you were going for a very kind of a natural approach to a kind of an understated almost approach to the language and at times not sort of I mean I noticed maybe with Haley more than anybody like not hitting the big famous lines hard like oh this is a big famous line exactly but just sort of saying it in a conversational way yeah I mean it's to start with it was I, I I'm, because I wanted it to be, you know, as naturalistic as possible. Of course, we're doing this on screen and, you know, some of these lines were overblown or they're quite dramatic. And to start with, I tried to fight it. I tried to break the lines down and, like, crunch into something. And and it was, like, quite painful and just sort of didn't quite work. And as soon as you sort of embrace the language, then you can relax into it. But she, ha- you know, she does have this great, um, great thing of, you know, she's, you know, from True Grit. This was only her second movie. Yeah, like, crazy. Insane. So, yeah, she has this great just naturalism about her and she's brave enough just to say it and just yeah. to, do you know what I mean just to sort of just be a, a innocent little girl that she is when I was looking up about Julian Fellows this is jumping mm-hmm. on to a completely different topic I saw that you did a film from with him yeah. years ago from my time first to time. ever film wow yeah he cast me my, which is a total coincidence that we worked together on this but he um he directed a movie a very small British film that not many people saw very sweet film and it had an amazing cast like Maggie Smith Timothy Spall Dominic West Hugh Bonneville pretty much half the cast of Downton Abbey <laughs> <laughs> literally Alan Leach um, Pauline Collins but yeah no he cast me in my first ever film and uh, so I suppose he gave me my break wow but that's a, that's a heck of a way to start off working it with was, Smith it was I remember sitting there at 16 I mean I've dreamt of being an actor since I was you know really young and sitting there my first read through I had Maggie Smith opposite Timothy Spall just next to her and then Dominic Westing one side of me and Hugh Bonneville the other and it was just like oh god these guys get paid to do this I'm just you know such a rookie but you know that you have to start somewhere and I'm 21 now and I've been learning and I will continue to learn for the rest of my life I hope let's talk about what's next then you've been working on Noah which yes. is pretty cool we had Logan Lerman in a couple of uh, oh, did months you? ago yeah. awesome I he seems uh, he seems really interested he he's seems so kind ex- of baffled by it just like he's it's so, really cool he's but weird. so excited for that film. I mean <laughs> I remember walking down the street we both like did our it wasn't really a test but our final reads with Darren yeah. and uh, opposite a couple of actresses in London in London in New York and I remember walking down the sidewalk with him 
and I'd only seen an early version of the script and he'd, he'd lucky, hadn't been lucky enough to see the latest version before me and he was just like this, he was just like going off about it just like this, this, I'm like, oh, this bit and I'm just like oh. you know it, it's, it's going to be intense and um, I'm just as excited to see it as all, as all you guys are as you can imagine like Darren he, he does interesting things and mm. he pushes boundaries and I mean I'm not sure what I can say about it or what, what's already known about it out there but um, it's going to be fun and you were hit by Hurricane Sandy during filming, is this right? <laughs> we were hit by bit, Hurricane Sandy. bit method, isn't it? Exactly, yeah, very method. We, we sort of were delayed a couple of, were delayed a while. We got delayed a couple of weeks by it. So God was, God was trying to tell us something. <laughs> I, I, remember, I remember we were, in, we were um, in Iceland and there's this point in the film to, near the end, the rainbow. Sounds really cheesy, but it's not. I promise you. There's like a rainbow. It sort of was meant to like appear, and they were literally just getting ready to shoot this bit, and a rainbow appears. Oh wow! I'm not even joking. And Darren is like creeped out. I mean, we've been we've been in Iceland. Darren's already like praying to the goblins or whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? Because when you shoot there, you have to like give offerings to the the goblins and the things that work there. And Darren took that very seriously. But yeah, no, it was a it was it was an amazing amazing job to film. It was you know they actually built this beautiful beautiful set you know in in Long Island the, the Ark, mm. and then in Brooklyn they built the interior of the Ark. The whole thing it was like a jungle wow. gym. You could go shoot 360 degrees anywhere it was wow. massive and, and just extraordinary and I remember you're running around this thing acting like there's just drops you know if you fall off this thing it's like you fall 200 feet to the bottom and it was like a hazardous but crazy set wow and the other one I want to ask about is posh because yes. I saw this on stage a couple of years ago and oh, it yeah. was amazing yeah it was, it was powerful right absolutely so yeah I did, that's the one I just finished a couple of weeks ago a month oh, ago well done so um, yeah posh was posh was great it was 10 very 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 talented young guys um, and to have us all in one place was just so much fun so it was the best job I've ever done I mean I, I sort of was with them all last night um, seeing Max Irons and Josh O'Connor in a play that they're doing and they're just such an amazing group of guys and this is it's an, it's a it's a very interesting and current story freddie fox my good friend who's in it he was at a party and tap 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 on his shoulder and it's david cameron <laughs> and he was just wanted to compliment on a play he'd seen him in west end and he's like mm-hmm. so what are you doing next and it was like um <laughs> just this film called posh and what well, and david's like what the one that was on one in the west end about the billington club he's like yeah that one and I was like, oh god! Um, <laughs> but I'm sure he's got bigger things to worry about. But no, it's it's it, it was a great. We had a great time, and uh, Lona Scherfig's very very talented, and we had a, we have a brilliant script by Laura Wade, and so I, I'm very excited to see it. We saw some footage at the rap party, and we were all chuffed. So Excellent. we'll see. I think I think it's gonna be it's gonna be a good ride that one. Fingers crossed. And uh, and just finally, what's next? I'm still deciding. A I'm, holiday, maybe? <laughs> a, de- a holiday, definitely. Once I've got this press out of the way, um, I'm going to look forward to that. I've got to decide whether something interesting enough comes up uh, for the end of the year. And But I'm, I'm a patient person, so, you know, I'm on a good run now after Romeo and then working with Darren and then the Wachowski straight away and then on Posh. I'm sort of, I'm not prepared to take anything that's sort of, um, that doesn't sort of meet the standards of, you know, working with such great filmmakers like them. I've sport myself now, so it kind of makes my job more difficult to find, you know, because yeah. filmmakers like that don't make movies um, every week. So, but also looking forward to a well-deserved holiday, I think. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very thank much you for coming so much. in. And Romeo Cheers. and Juliet is out today. Movie reviews time now. Busy week this week, so let's start with the film that started life as 
an Oscar contender, I guess, but which seems to have fallen away somewhat. It's The Fifth Estate, Bill Condon's recounting of the creation of WikiLeaks with Benedict Cumberbatch as Julian Assange. So, where do we stand on this one? I'm afraid we stand pretty much square in its sternum. Um, <laughs> yeah, this this didn't quite go entirely to plan. Um, I think if you've been following the news even slightly in the last three or four years, you kind of know the plot. Um, it takes, it follows Julian Assange from, you know, kind of rebel hacker almost to to you know the most controversial and most wanted man in the world and and also from sort of outsider hero to you know megalomaniac it's like weirdo so it's you know it's a complicated kind of an arc there's a lot going on but it just this doesn't feel like you ever really get inside and really understand anything more than you already do from reading the news that's not to criticize you know most of the acting benedict cumberbatch is very good as assange i mean he pretty much doesn't do bad really does he but you know he, he doesn't have a lot to do with the script uh, Daniel Brühl is kind of underwritten as his co-conspirator you've got you know great great supporting cast David Thewlis is in there Peter Capaldi mm. but they just don't get anything to work with there's nothing there's no there there really for them to work mm. with and I think that's basically the big problem it, it, it feels slow it feels plodding um, it feels like you've heard it all before already, mm. um, and I'm afraid we just—it just needed a bit more sharpness. It maybe needed another pass of the script, or maybe maybe just needed someone really kind of inspired to direct this and kind of lift it off the page into something else, which I'm afraid kind of hasn't happened. So we give this two stars. Maybe a bit rushed, you think? Yeah, I mean, maybe they were trying still to get fine. it out while it was still very much in the headlines yeah. before he leaves one day the Ecuadorian embassy. <laughs> um, but, you know, th- that isn't always a virtue. And I think what you anything you gain in terms of, you know, interest, you lose in terms of actual insight. So, yeah, didn't work. Where does it come down on the sand himself? Is he uh, a noble hero with people's the, the best intentions of the world at heart? Or is he, as we all suspect, a bit of a pillock? <laughs> Um, I think a bit of a weirdo is probably the the best way to look at it. I mean, there, there are elements of both of those kind of threads. You know, he's he's definitely not portrayed as just a hero, mm-hmm. but neither is he portrayed as just a you know a creep or a, a traitor or anything else you want to call him. I think you know they they do in fairness get you know a little bit of nuance and a bit of both sides of that, which again you'd expect given that Cumberbatch is in the role. But it's there's just there's just not enough there's there's no real insight you feel like you get more from just a mm. well-written article in the guardian or the new yorker <laughs> or whoever else you know and everyone's written that article already yeah okay, so, so two stars for that one sadly not a recommendation uh moving on swiftly then to uh the weekend which is roger michelle's tale of a married couple enjoying well kind of enjoying a weekend in paris uh, stars a great cast jim broadbent lindsey duncan and the magnificent Jeff Goldblum, whose pint of milk is a thing of beauty and can be picked up in the current issue of Empire, which is still on sale in all good and evil news agents. But anyway, the film itself written by Hanif Qureshi. What are our thoughts on this one? Hanif Qureshi, just in case you didn't realise quite who he was, is the uh, novelist and playwright. Uh, he also brought us back in the day, My Beautiful Laundrette, and I remember reading it when I was younger, Buddha of Suburbia and many, many other novels. Intimacy and things like that. Yeah, exactly. So he is uh, an established presence, uh, as is uh, his collaborator, Roger, and I'm going to get the surname slightly wrong, I think. Is it a Michel or Michel? I've always said Michel. Yeah, so have I. Anyway, it's they, French. It's a French. It's a film set in France. Let's go for Michel. Michel. Yeah, Michel. Okay. R- Roger, Michel. Uh, they combined to, for this kind of two-hander, uh, indie-ish feeling, romantic comedy come drama, where Jim Broadbent and Lindsay Duncan kind of spar off each other, where... One is kind of avuncular and prickly. You can guess which one that one is. But together, this indie feel and their natural screen presence combine 
to create a kind of an enjoyable indie, like I say, film. Like uh, Dan Joel and our reviewer came up with a great term, which was it feels a bit like the exotic mumblecore hotel. <laughs> uh, which you can't not enjoy, and you obviously got Jeff Goldblum uh, more as a cameo than as a as a, as a lead role. Mm. But it's it's an insightful look at uh, what it is to have been married to somebody for thirty years, and what happens when you try to recapture magic. They go back to Paris because that's where they first had their honeymoon, and this is where they're having their second honeymoon. So it's kind of a character study between these two. And if you've ever enjoyed either Broadbent or Duncan, then it's well worth a look. Though perhaps you know it might be one to buy mum for Christmas rather than necessarily go and see in the cinema. This is almost like a weird very late middle aged version British answer to the Richard Linklater, Ethan Hawke, Julie Delpy movies isn't it? The, the, the before trilogy yeah. if you will. I'm trying to think of what this won't be called. Yeah, before Elevenses maybe. But yeah, it's, it's okay so I, I'd say but Goldblum is a delight. He's not in it very much but he's a delight, he's a delight when he's on screen in anything. Go and see Jeff Goldblum in anything What did we give it? We gave it three stars Three stars there you go. Recommendation. Check it out. Phil, for what it's worth, uh, Artie Phil loved it. Artie Phil loved it. He really loved it. <laughs> he loved it. All right, so uh, moving on then. One of the most memorable parts of Grindhouse was the fake trailer for Robert Rodriguez's Machete. How fun, we all thought. Uh, Rodriguez turned that fake trailer into an actual movie starring Danny Trejo as a cool mercenary with a penchant for making love and war. Problem is, it wasn't very good, but that hasn't stopped Rodriguez from recruiting an all-star cast, or former all-star cast, for the sequel, Machete Kills thoughts on this one Nicholas this is a film that I want to like it's got Danny Trejo as obviously the blade wielding machete who's recruited by the president played by Charlie Sheen to stop uh, Mel Gibson nuking America which is a plot I can get behind in a a major way (laughs) I think it may have actually happened (laughs) (laughs) and this is also a film which gives a poster one sheet to William Sadler so you know it's it's good that this film is being made but I just wish it was better because it's uh, like the first one, which which I didn't like very much. I don't think you did either, did you, Chris? No, you no. reviewed it. Yeah, it's not great. It's not particularly funny. Uh, it's not particularly well sort of put together in terms of the action, which is strange because Rodriguez can do action. We know this, so mm. it, it's odd. And he's kind of directing the whole thing as, quite weirdly, a Roger Moore Bond film, which it turns into Moonraker in the second half. It's completely stuffed with cameos. It's got Lady Gaga in it. It's got Cuba Gooding Jr. in it. Which is rather strange. Uh, it's got Sofia Vergara from Modern Family, and you know, people, famous people keep popping up. That's kind of the main attraction of it, I guess, is seeing who's in it and it's what they get up to. The main attraction. Let's talk about the main attraction. You say Sofia Vergara, but we've also got Sofia Vergara wearing a machine gun bra. Yeah. You see, I'm really not unsure about the physics of that. I mean, where are the barrels? Do you know what I mean? They're not that long. I'm, I just think you'd lose a lot in accuracy for that bra. And also, where are the bullets coming from? Like, it just it doesn't Helen. make any sense. Yeah. You're over she, she also has a kind of, a, a, so what can only be described as a penis gun, um, which she also shoots. So that, that kind of detract slightly from the sexiness of hey, the hey, whole hey, thing. Hey, hey, look, I don't judge. That sounds great. <laughs> You're up for that. I'm all aboard. Let's, um, oh, yeah, that's very interesting. It's not the first time, of course, he's used a penis gun. She is actually, I think, the worst thing about the film. It's not her fault, but that character is absolutely dreadful, Sophia Verger. She plays a madame of a brothel who runs around after Machete with a bunch of uh, cool girls, and um, she has a monologue in which she describes ripping out her dad's uh, testicles with her teeth and it's it's really horrible and it's it's kind of addictive of the whole film you're watching that scene going is this meant to be funny is, what's the point of this yeah so it's it's kind of misjudged in a lot of places i'd say the main reason to watch it is actually mel gibson who doesn't turn up until the last sort of 20 minutes but he's a lot of fun when he does show up and he has a klingon batleth 
I mean, that's exciting. He does. He also travels around in an actual Star Wars land speeder because his character <laughs> is a fan of Star Wars. And he has it, yeah, he's, uh, he's completely nuts in it. See, you didn't like this film, and Dan Jolin, who reviewed it, uh, I think Borderline hated it. But every time you describe this movie, it sounds amazing to me. There's a bad guy who has a land speeder yeah. and a batleth. Uh, it sounds like a Roger Moore late <laughs> Bond movie. I know. Yeah. To me, exactly. I, and I got excited when I was like, I really hope that they've got it right this time. It, on paper, this is genius, mm. I think. And I, I want it to be better than it is. An but when you see yeah. it, it's actually... And it starts and ends with uh, a kind of trailer for the next one, in which Machete goes into space. Spoiler. It's not too much of a spoiler because he's been saying this forever that this it's is going to happen. But they they go into space and Machete gets a lightsaber machete, so that's gonna that's oh, gonna happen. Lord. Is that Machete kills again? Is that the uh, the, the full the title? I believe is Machete kills again. Dot 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 in space. <laughs> I like again. I'm giving Daniel a lot of praise this week, but his review of this on the website, which you should check out, tries to review the film. It tries to approach it with uh, a genuine interest in the characters and what it has to say and you know how is it constructed but really where do you begin and how do you actually review this film if you're interested in machete if you enjoyed the first film watch this because like we just said what the crap but otherwise i mean is this a film yeah i mean yeah. i mean is it just seems like a joke that's been stretched too far it was probably stretched too far in the trailer and <laughs> grindhouse and then they made a movie the first movie i thought was pretty dreadful um, I don't think anyone was really crying out for a sequel to this, apart from maybe Danny Trejo and Robert Rodriguez. And but here we are. One thing uh, that's kind of interesting is the cast all pronounce Machete in a different way. Really? So you can kind of keep a keep an eye out for. See you again, you're telling me something that sounds good. I want to see this film now. But machete. We, machete. Machete. Uh, we gave it what two stars? Yes, two stars. Which is a non-recommendation, as we always say on the podcast. Next up is the latest take on Romeo and Juliet, written by Julian Fellows and starring Douglas Booth and Hayley Steinfeld as the star-crossed lovers. You don't need to know the plot, do you? You know the plot by now. So yeah, what's this one like? Hopefully so. Um, this was so the Julian Fellows adaptation is kind of interesting. He he does actually you know play with some different scenes. He does approach it in a slightly different way, which is kind of a good thing. I think it's always good to do that. So when I say written by Julian Fellows, you mean written by Shakespeare? Written by Shakespeare, adapted, adapted by, by Julian Fellows. Does he? stick to the Shakespearean idiom or does he yeah he does okay, yeah. Okay. yeah it's just a matter of what to cut I mean the whole play as if produced as written would be about three hours long and this is more like two one three quarters two so um, right. he, he has cut it down but he's done it in interesting ways the duel with Paris is restored which is usually cut out so that's kind of interesting and there's some good stuff in there the, the problem for me was it just didn't quite take off I, it, it felt very staid and very very sober a lot of the time and I think I think actually Romeo and Juliet shouldn't and maybe this is just the fact that I've spent 15 years watching Baz Luhrmann's kind of dizzy take on it but I do think that works remarkably well um what they've also done they've got an Italian director which is interesting and they shot on location in Italy in the places where the, mm. the play is set um, I think for the most part that works quite well because you know it does look gorgeous and it's it's proper period setting but then again a lot of these palaces and things that they're shooting in have been renovated or rebuilt since the 14th century obviously so actually it's not that authentic because there's bits of Baroque architecture and stuff that date from about 200 years ago so there's, there's little problems like that and I think also given that you have an Italian director, even though he speaks perfect English, he maybe just doesn't have the feel for the language that you, I think, need to tackle Shakespeare really, really well. Um, and so sometimes when some of the cast are going for naturalism, what they actually hit on is mumbling. 
Um, and you lose some of the lines, which I think is a real problem, particularly for Steinfeld, who I think is a great, great actress, but it just doesn't quite always come across here. The supporting cast are good. Paul Giamatti is, it makes for a great friar. Um, Damien Lewis is the best Lord Capulet I've ever seen. Oh, wow. Okay. But just overall, I just find myself quite almost bored a lot of the time. I just wanted it to have a bit more a bit more life to it, a bit more energy. And, and, you know, you find yourself kind of ticking off the scenes almost. And and, it, and that isn't what you should be doing in a well-adapted Shakespeare play, from, from my money. So for me, this was... It, I, I went back and forth. I wrote the review on this. I went back and forth between a two and a three. It is a high two, but I ended up on a two um, because it, it's just not quite as good as, it, good as it should be. I mean, it doesn't match the Lerman. It doesn't match the Zeffirelli. It's just another take on the play. Okay. And that's a... Another two-star review. Afraid so. A hell of a week, isn't it? A little bit. Out on Monday, as we discussed, is VHS 2. Uh, like the first movie, it's got some interesting segments, some not-so-interesting segments, but it's still worth a look for Evans' Safe Haven Alone, which is not to be confused with the Nicholas Sparks movie, Helen. Oh, thank you. Me. <laughs> a bit, uh, bit askewler. Really? Uh, no, really? No, not the same thing. Not I mean, the there was thing. a ghost, I guess, yeah. but... <laughs> True. <laughs> not the same thing at all. There's no review yet on the Empire website, but do check back on Monday and hopefully there will be one up there then. We don't always end with the third interview, but you know what? Let's go for it. Hayley Atwell might be best known for playing Peggy Carter in Captain America, The First Avenger, but the British actress is currently storming the stage with the hard-hitting play The Pride, in which she stars as a 1950s woman whose husband falls for another man, and, later on, she plays a modern-day hedonist as well. It's a heck of a play and a heck of a role, or roles, and she popped into the pod booth to talk to Helen and Ali about it. The last time we spoke to you was, well, it was, wasn't was me or Helen, it was uh, Chris who talked to you in Comic-Con for Agent Carter. Now, mm. this is an entirely different beast, I think it's fair enough to say. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us just a little bit about it? I know that's a bit of a vague, pat question, but could you just tell us a little bit about The Pride? Yeah, The Pride, it won Olivier five years ago for Best New Play by Alexi K. Campbell. And very few people saw it because it was upstairs at the Royal Court, so it was a tiny little production. And um, it kind of instantly became a modern classic and toured the world and had lots of lots of uh, critical acclaim. And because of of that, Alexi and the director Jamie Lloyd, who I'd worked with previously, had decided to put it on in the West End just to give it a, a, a bigger home, really. We started rehearsals July in July and it's essentially a love story between um, two men and a woman and this woman suspects her husband is gay and she gives him every opportunity to try and confront that within himself as well as with her and he can't quite do it and it it, um, it shifts between this triangle in 1958 and then a modern idea of the same characters but living in modern day and actually how that they they would have a completely different experience of, of um, gay identity and how society sees them. Sylvia, your character is just very liberated in 2008 yeah. and you can just say some fantastic things. Is there a particular line that you look forward to every night you're doing this eight times a week i think you were yes saying. well it, it's funny you should say that because i we, we did a q a last night within with the audience and they asked me exactly the same question and the I'm only the best, thing right? there you go you're the best <laughs> uh, so everyone wants to know but um what's quite exciting is that every night because it's live theater it's very very different and a delivery of a line one night can feel very different mm-hmm. from another night often because you're picking up from scene one the energy of the audience you know if it's a reflective audience a serious audience a funny audience an audience you really want to laugh and so it it starts to affect how you run some of the scenes obviously within telling of the same story so last night for example i say this one line at the end which is um um my my character's just going it doesn't matter if we get married or not because what we've got is enough and the audience went oh and then (laughs) and then i go and i and my line is um 
completely ignored by the rest of the cast members on on stage. So I go, um, I'm going to get an ice cream, and I walk off. And it's a, it's a. I've obviously been kind of blanked and and have egg, I walk off with egg on my face. But for some reason, the audience found that hilarious and applauded. <laughs> and most nights, it gets nothing. It's Hayley's like humiliated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is very strange. So, so uh, normally I hate saying that line because I do feel quite humiliated as the character. But last night, it was um, the the audience loved it. So you, again, it just goes back to you. Just you don't know what the audience is going to like from one minute mm. to the next. Really, it's surprisingly funny. I mean, people have said that in reviews, and it comes across as a bit of an insult. But it, it's not meant that way it is surprisingly funny yeah, yeah. there's some very difficult and challenging subject matter and then you've got Matthew Horn as 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 a Nazi as, uh, a, as a Nazi call man call a prostitute I love the term yeah. call man call man <laughs> just coined that phrase a call man all the characters have funny lines mm. and that's I think one of the reasons why people respond so well to this play is yeah. because yes there's very serious issues but it's not worthy it's it's there's this it's undercut with a lot of wit and a lot of warmth mm. and it makes fun of itself and it makes fun of the issues that it's presenting. You have to change sometimes from 1958 costume to 2008 costume within seconds. Yeah, six seconds. Six seconds. Mm. Are there like four people like just ready for you? There are three people. Three people? Yes, there are three people backstage. It would be wonderful if we could have a camera that sees you know me walking off stage very... Very, very quietly, with, with with dignity, in the you know in 1958, and and then the absolute mad scramble <laughs> to get everything off and everything else back on before I come on stage with a pair of glasses and an oven glove, and suddenly I'm thrust into the modern day. And in a way, it, the, the, the other day, I basically I've got my my modern day outfit underneath my 1950s oh. outfit, and um, I one day in a I don't know what was going on through my head but I forgot to put my top on so um I come off stage and I whipped off the trench coat and I had no top on underneath I just had the jeans on and I just went fuck what am I oh my, oh my god and everyone else going, I don't know what to do I don't know what to do, what to do. and so Litch just pushed me on stage so I had the jeans of modern day, a skirt from the 50s, a trench coat from the 50s, but I was barefoot, but I had an oven glove on and a pair of glasses. <laughs> and and there's just mad panic in my face, having just been crying in the last scene. Oh, goodness. And I didn't know what was going on. And poor Al, who plays Oliver in it, who I have to come on stage to, just kind of looked at me and almost put his lies, just went, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. And I ran off. Uh, I have an opportunity to run off stage to go and get something, so I was able to, to take off the trench and put the top back on. Uh, and have you, I saw that Stephen Fry loves this play. Mm. Was he mentioning you on Twitter, going just, "Well done, that was yeah, that was good work." He was. We well, went out for dinner afterwards. He's a he's a mate of mine, and he um, I knew he'd love the play. I knew he'd love the themes of the play. So um, you know, I was I kind of called him up and just went, "Come and see it. You've got to come." So he was great, and he sat right in the middle of the stalls and uh, gave it a standing ovation. And, and he's such a big presence as well that when I walked on scene one, I was like, "Hello, Stephen. There you are. Hello, <laughs> right, excellent. Okay, you're in tonight. Okay." And, uh, and then he kind of he stood up at the end and he gave a gave a big loud bravo, and he was just uh, just lovely. You know, he's, he's, a, he's, he's wonderful like that because obviously he's not he's. He's such a strong voice on Twitter that if he does like something, then then he's he promotes it. And he's actually one of the reasons why I I went on to Twitter as well. Because I thought if a man of that stature and that intelligence is tweeting, then it's yeah. uh, 
it's maybe it could be used as a positive thing and we were encouraged during rehearsals to to tweet about the show do you get people telling you you should be this character this thing and you need to do this do you, do you get people trying to join in in your life i get kind of like um hi uh, this is my email address what's yours like let's be friends and I'm like, <laughs> i'll go right okay i wouldn't do that <laughs> i just i don't know who would either i'm just like randomly giving out my email address to people on twitter that i don't know but um i think there is something that i you know, that i'm aware of especially with the whole captain america thing and the peggy carter thing which is that following that fan base is incredibly loyal and very strong and it's something that i i respect i because i'm i'm incredibly flattered and grateful to it because that support has helped peggy carter become actually bigger than she was on the page really the mm. people have create tumblr pages for her and and backstories for her and they they put montages of me in slow motion from the film with with music <laughs> from i don't know from like the power of love or something and they they create these worlds and and who, who am i to to judge or belittle that because it means a lot to people and um, t Twitter is one way of that I can I understand that how strong that fan base is without getting weirded out yeah. by it I just think it's um, you know it's quite an extraordinary world the comic book universe I saw the, the Peggy Carter one shot mm. at, at Comic Con which was terrific and it was just really good as well to see an overtly feminist piece like that which mm. is which is pretty rare actually you know it's, it's it's absolutely clear about they're not letting her do anything and she's capable of so much more you know yeah. it's a very kind of on um just straightforward uh, piece, which I thought was great. Oddly enough, and it shouldn't be, but it is quite timely in mm. that there was an article I read recently that was sent to me by the producers of the one shot, and they just said, look, it's kind of this themes are everywhere, and it was talking about we need more heroines in superhero movies. We don't just want the the token sex symbol, yeah. the flirty, seductive, um, skin-tight clad woman who kind of doesn't really do much. We want someone who's got a bit more than that, mm. and we want to the the female fan base which is huge um just as much so as the, the men um want representatives of that of themselves that have qualities that they they can aspire to and with with Peggy when I saw when I when I saw Captain America I'm always very underwhelmed by anything that I do and I go oh is that it I work so bloody hard and it just turned out you know to be pouting and pointing a gun but there's a quality that she that she had which is very strong yeah. almost stubbornly strong and that seems out of her time um, and it's something that the the audiences responded well to so it's obviously tapped into subconscious a psyche of of what of what audiences of those that genre of film want mm. and. Um, so I'm very grateful to it because I, I really love working with the Marvel lot. I think they're a really lovely yeah. bunch of people and that's because they're kind of, they're so, um, they, they're nerds, they're fans of their own universe and there's a little bit of narcissism <laughs> yeah they're, they're, yeah exactly god, and we're great god yeah it's like oh god and then you know that when you're sitting around the table going we're gonna do this and oh my god and loki's gonna come in it's gonna be so cool and then and it's it's lovely to see that yeah. you know instead of people sitting around a boardroom going like okay how are we gonna make money out of this yeah. and, and how are we gonna um capitalize on this or take advantage of this or manipulate the audience into wanting to go and see this and and they're really like they sit around like 16 year old boys with just going oh my god and then this could happen and I, I think that's great. Yeah. You know, it shows a real enthusiasm for their work. The internet is a hive of rumour and lies, scum mm. and villainy. Uh, have you had any enjoyable uh, rumours that you've read where you've gone, really, I'm, I'm starring in that, am I? That's that's going to be interesting. I better speak to my agent about that. No, but I didn't. My friend, my friend called me up. She went, are you engaged? No, I'm single. What are you talking about? She's, like, she's saying, there's a website that says Hayley Atwell spotted engagement ring hunting with with boyfriend they're so in love and I'm like really who is this man i'm excited i'm gonna go i'm gonna get married that's amazing um 
so there's you know things things like that and uh, and then on Tumblr lots of people go um, they, they create fictional stories and they go you know, and they then they create the poster where they've taken like a picture from a still from a film that I've done and they've put put it me with um, I don't know Chris Hemsworth or someone and they've just and they've like blocked out what the story is and, and then they kind of do they'll do a montage of me looking in the distance and then him looking <laughs> in the distance and create these love stories which I'm like oh god it's, I, I wasn't didn't star in that but um, but sure but yeah. sure why not it's uh, yeah it's um, it's quite I find it quite funny it's quite amusing there's not there's not being anything so far negative uh, so I'm kind of I've, I think I've lucked out the one I read recently was that Agent Carter would be its own show off the back of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. hopefully it'll be a success that there might be more Agent Carters. Mm. Can you confirm or deny or say nothing about it? I don't know. I have no idea. Um, I know I read something on the internet myself. <laughs> I read myself that uh, the producer had said this isn't the end of Peggy, but um, you know, there's a lot more stories that Peggy can have, and I think theoretically speaking, that's true. And I think mm. there's a there's enough of an interest for her to to come back. I certainly would embrace that because I did, do love working with those guys, and I do love playing her. She she does feature in in the second captain america so um that's all i know cool <laughs> we'll keep our fingers crossed then yeah, yeah. um and it, i mean you're, you're kind of part of the marvel family now and it, what, what's interesting is looking at a couple of your other upcoming projects there's other former marvelites obviously kenneth branner yeah directed thor and and tom hiddleston i guess yeah. is in uh, was it uh, all all is by my side Oh no no no! That was uh, that's a Jimi Hendrix. Oh, um, sorry, it is. Th- no, it, th- that was the the film that we were that and was going to happen. We're going to do oh. together okay. about Robert Kappa. But Tom and I have been friends for about ten years, and okay. um, uh, he's great. And I, when we were in Comic Con, he was he was of course going to do his big Loki um, reveal. Which have, did you see that? I we was were there. You were there. Yeah, you we were you, in you saw it. So my name. The, the place <laughs> went. The place went mental. I, well, I was with him. I, I was getting a, a flight back, so I couldn't see it. But I was with him, getting ready in his hotel room, watching him, and and the, the, watching the transformation from this blonde-headed, blonde-haired, you know, kind-hearted, enthusiastic um, Tom to to transforming into Loki. <laughs> and there I was, kind of taking pictures of his wig and touching his uniform, his outfit, and. And there he was up with his electric toothbrush dressed as Loki, just you know, brushing his teeth before he came on. And then having like six people put a cloak on him and walk him through the corridor of the hotel and then down underneath the basement to where the car was to get him in secretly. And it was fascinating to watch. It was so funny. And he had to come in through customs into Comic-Con with a big kind of helmet on in disguise. And um, he wasn't allowed to leave his hotel room. And he had to... So I'd be texting him during having fun in Comic-Con and just be like, just been having dinner with Samuel L. Jackson. He's like, I'm in my hotel room. I can't leave <laughs> and uh, the poor guy had to be under, undercover um, and it, it was quite it was it was an eye-opening experience but he was great at it you know he yeah. fully embraced it oh he, he went for it yeah he certainly did time of his life I think yeah. is probably you the mewling quims <laughs> loved it going back to Cinderella is it a weird situation to be in where you're part of Cinderella and you think well it's Cinderella there's nothing to spoil there mm. are you still sworn to secrecy when it comes to being part of a you know bedtime story for the ages I think what I will say is that um, when I first met Ken, he is such a bright man. He's so intelligent, and his take on Cinderella is is very is actually very pure and very simple. I think. And what I really liked is the idea they're not trying to vamp it up. They're not putting zombies in it, and they're not putting <laughs> vampires in it. They're not over sexualizing Cinderella. They are telling a story. Um, 
this is uh, this is very 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 different project from it but it's like do you remember the response that Joe Wright got when he did Pride and Prejudice and how it in, for many ways I think it changed Keira Knightley's um, because it was such a beautifully told film so true to the book and the original story that it um, it got out of the way itself it wasn't trying to do anything mm. other than just tell a really well made story no gimmick no gimmick exactly and um not, I don't want to compare the two because obviously they're incredibly different, very different directors. But um, there's still a lot to be said for those those classic Disney stories that that still are watched by generation after generation after generation of kids. And um, this is not so much a retelling of it as as I think taking what is essentially a universal story that so many kids can relate to and so many kids want to watch over and over again, and um, and and telling it in, in a way that. We can nowadays with the the technology that we have and the um, the talent that we have, and uh, the the character I play is is kind of the embodiment of maternal love and teaches her a very valuable lesson at the beginning of the film, which then Cinderella takes on and uses throughout the story and at, with it throughout the film, and it's very moving and it's um uh and I found. Ken working with Ken although it's only a couple of scenes that I'm in at the beginning he asked me lots of questions in day one of rehearsals about the backstory and I had to think on my feet of creating this world and he said even though you might only be in four or five scenes because he believes in the intelligence and the intuition of the audience that will pick up subliminal messages about who this character is and he said if you fill this character and you fill every single moment with a detailed strong sense of who she is and a backstory of why did she call her Ella where did where did she grow up what do you think she's suffering from um, has she had any other kids why is Ella in only all these things will give me just a stronger presence on camera which is what Ken told me and what he he believed and and as a result every single character and every single actor no matter how big or small their part is feels valued and feels like you're fulfilling something that's very important in the telling of this story well sounds magic frankly Mm. Uh, so the pride is still on in london it's gonna be on for another six weeks yeah that's right until november 9th and tickets are still available okay so get out there and see it frankly it's very very good and heavy atwell thank you very much thank you guys thank you thank you Join us next week for more formulated fun when we'll have another hat trick of interviews. We'll be talking to Paul Greengrass about Captain Phillips, David Gordon Green about Prince Avalanche, and Don Mancini, the creator of the Child's Play series, and Fiona Dura to talk about the latest instalment, Curse of Chucky. Until then, it is goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Nick. Pip pip. It's goodbye from Ali. Well, not quite goodbye because I'll be here in just a couple of seconds talking to you about uh, Beyond Two Souls, our sponsor, and uh, you can hear more about it then. Uh, so that's nice so stick around to hear my voice hooray uh, and it is goodbye from me I'm off to show these guys some more pictures of the ocean see you next week so well shark oh God, Chris stop it I don't want to know Now it's time for the science bit of the Empire podcast, where Ali, the editor, that's me, by the way, uh, tells you a bit more about our sponsor, Beyond Two Souls. A psychological action thriller, Beyond Two Souls features a brand new game engine, a compelling original story, and, as mentioned previously in the podcast, a top-notch Hollywood cast in the form of Ellen Page and Willem Dafoe. It's also got a score by Hans Zimmer. This makes it a sophisticated, technologically advanced, immersive gaming experience only on PlayStation 3. In it, you'll live the extraordinary life of Jodie Holmes, played by Paige, a young woman who possesses supernatural powers through a psychic link to an invisible entity known only as Aiden. Experience the most striking moments of Jodie's life as your actions and decisions determine her fate, traversing the globe with her as she faces incredible challenges against the backdrop of emotionally charged events never before seen in a video game. 
Beyond Two Souls is out now, so you can buy it wherever you like, whenever you like. Thank you for listening to this little bit of blurb at the end of the podcast. It is gratefully appreciated. And please do enjoy the rest of your week. Goodbye.